Hi, welcome to Talking Brains, a podcast on mental health, books, and what makes brains happy. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Sarkis. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Burton. Dr. Burton is a developmental pediatrician in Pleasantville, New York, and the author of How Children Thrive, Mindful Parenting for ADHD, and Mindfulness and Self-Compassion for Teen ADHD, which integrate mindfulness into evidence-based pediatric care. He is an assistant professor of pediatrics at New York Medical College, on the faculty of the Windward Teacher Training Institute, and on the editorial advisory board of Common Sense Media. His blog is available through mindful.org and Psychology Today. For more information, visit his website, developmentaldoctor.com. Hi, Mark. Welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here. Good to, good to see you today, or at least hear you today. <laughs> Always a pleasure. So we're going to talk a little bit about mindfulness and self-compassion. So if you could first explain a little bit about what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is, I mean, it gets used so many different ways. And I think, you know, on its simplest level, mindfulness can be seen as just unbiased awareness, which is um, way more complicated than it seems. So I'll just, I'll expand on it a little bit. Um, I think all of us are aware with or without ADHD that we tend to get caught up in distraction and reactivity. You know, our, we're here, but our minds are caught up in anxiety provoking thoughts of the future or anxieties of the past, or, you know, we could enjoy what's going on right now, but we're still ruminating about what happened three hours ago. Um, and all of that's kind of inevitable. There's no goal to any of mindfulness practice that it goes away completely. Uh, but the basic starting premise of mindfulness is that we're going to live our lives more easily and relate to what's going on more easily. Also, if we just see with, you know, see with clarity, just, you know, come back to our best intentions more consistently, which is why mindfulness practice is something anybody can really do if they choose to. Um, It's not about being still or having a quiet mind. It's about a little bit really about changing how we're living some. So, we're just able to manage our lives with more skill. And um, you know, that, that could mean just being aware enough to know when, one of the examples I use around ADHD a lot is that you, know, you might be in a situation where there's just too much noise and distraction around to have a, a useful conversation and some friend of yours you know, is really trying to get into an intense conversation, you know, like in the school cafeteria, And seeing things clearly being mindful, isn't that suddenly you can be totally laser focused, you know, that's an illusion. And if you think that's what you're going to get out of it, you're not going to, you're going to quit pretty quickly. Seeing clearly might just be having the confidence, the self-compassion even to recognize that even though it's difficult, you need to, you know, if you tell your friend, like, I just can't have this conversation here. It's too distracting for me. Let's go outside. You know, and that's skillfully navigating a situation. So, um, so the first way to look at mindfulness, I'll, I'll add one more thing, and then I'll I'll pause for a second. But the, you know, the first side of practicing mindfulness is just recognizing that there's value to trying to get out of autopilot and live our lives with more awareness. Um, and then the second one, which is huge for all of us, and also very specific to ADHD, is that without a little bit of effort stress and reactivity tends to just perpetuate itself so that something makes us feel anxious or worried and that changes a little bit how we think and then how we're thinking changes how we feel and how we feel changes 
maybe how our body feels. And then when our bodies feel off, that also changes how we think. And, you know, our whole life can just be this constant escalation and staying caught up in this physiological fight or flight response. And, you know, while some amount of stress is useful and keeps us motivated, you know, being chronically consumed by stress isn't a useful way to be living. It changes how we communicate. It changes how we problem solve. It changes how we feel. That's particularly true of ADHD because the way we see ADHD now as a disorder that affects executive function, you know, executive function skills are kind of our life management skills. So it may be that just, you know, navigating day-to-day life is more stressful than it, than it needs to be. So when you put all that together, you know, in general, in life, there's value to just doing the things we can to help step out of chronic stress, to step out of that stress cycle more consistently. You know, and again, we don't want to eliminate stress. It keeps us safe, but to manage it better. Um, and specifically to ADHD, you know, managing ADHD is really complicated and it's hard to stick to plans and it's hard to know what to do. And we have to make difficult decisions and, and all of that's true. Um, so clearly when it comes to managing ADHD, if we can manage stress and, or another way of looking at mindfulness, it's, is it is a process of building our own resilience. So if we can stay more resilient and grounded over time, um, that'll help us with something like managing ADHD. And I've read about living with intention. Does that correlate with this? I, I actually, I, I, I love that question, uh, that, that, that summarizing of it. Um, it does have a lot to do with living with intention, because if you think about it, when, when we're caught up with stress or reactivity or fear, or we, we just lose touch with often what we know best, you know, in any situation, we may not be doing or saying what we would recommend anybody else do or say in that situation. Um, so that mindfulness in many ways can be seen as a way of coming back to our best intentions in any given moment. And then also being patient with us when we inevitably lose touch with our intentions. And in fact, it's a great way to reframe meditation practice as a whole, which can be really frustrating otherwise. Um, you know, the intention of meditation, uh, at least mindfulness meditation, isn't to be calm or to relax specifically. Thankfully, that happens sometimes. Uh, it's, it's broader than that. It's, it's that we're practicing things that become traits that become more part of our day-to-day life. And one way of looking at it is exactly like you mentioned just now, in that we're setting this intention. It's a really unusual thing in many ways to be practicing. I mean, it may be the only activity we're doing in life where um, we're setting out to do something we inherently can never do right. Uh, you know, so we're trying maybe to focus on the feeling of breathing uh, only because it's there. It's just like, it is something we can focus on. We're not trying to do anything specific or make anything happen. And then inevitably we lose touch with that intention. You know, right now that's what we've decided to do. And then our mind gets distracted. And maybe the most important process of the whole moment, that whole situation is both noticing when we've lost touch with that and coming back and also doing that with a sense of self-care of like, wow, you know, we're trying to do this and we just, you know, lost track again. And there's no need for any frustration or self-judgment or self-criticism because it's just to be expected. Um, but you can expand that view to, um, well, first of all, just mindfulness practice as a whole. So you decide this would be a good idea to try and then you do it for three days and then you forget. And a week later you go, oh, I got to start again. 
And it's the same thing. You know, you don't have to be really harsh with yourself in that moment. You can just say like, oh, wow, you know, it's hard to form a new habit. And then you catch yourself and you try to start that new habit again and it gets easier over time. Um, but then you can expand that out again, which is the real intention of mindfulness is to live differently. And we can bring that sense of doing our best to keep, keep in touch with our own intentions to kind of anything we're doing. So we're having a difficult conversation and our intention is to stay you know, calm and to communicate well, and then we get rattled and it all comes apart. And, you know, the most important moment is, you know, can we develop this mindfulness practice that lets us notice that happened and maybe with a little more ease and openness, you know, just come back and realign ourselves with like, okay, you know, I lost, you know, got rattled again, got angry again, got flustered. Um, but now I'm going to come back, you know, what do I think would be the best way to handle this situation? Um, and that is, a, a, I think, a really useful way of reframing mindfulness practice. You know, in, in many situations, um, we do have a pretty good sense of, of what would be best. Uh, what best is a, almost a, a value word, but what would be, you know, the most skillful things we can do. Um, and then we lose touch with it. And then we try to come back. And it's meant to be a very proactive process, too. It's not that we're going to be okay with everything. You know, but we may just by coming back, by stepping out of stress, by staying settled, however you want to frame it for yourself, um, we can come back and try again or maybe adjust or take or, or choose to do something different. So it sounds like progress is progress, regardless of how often you do this, that just the fact you're doing it is what matters. A hundred percent. hundred. I mean, one of the other analogies used with mindfulness a lot, which isn't the... Um, you know, easiest because it does require ongoing work is that it's, it's a little bit like physical exercise where, you know, if you, and this I know can be a trigger for some people who miss lots of us struggled to stay in shape physically, but, but really our, you know, our bodies respond to regular physical exercise by getting in better shape. And then if we stop regular exercise, they start getting out of shape again. Um, and that's a lot of like, really what mindfulness practice is like, I mean, our mind does its own thing an awful lot of the time. And certainly we're all familiar with the fact that, um, you know, without a little effort, it's easy to get caught up in stress and reactivity until we do something that lets us settle down again, you know, a vacation or something. And then we realize like, oh, I feel a lot better now. You know, I would be nice to be able to, you know, live this way more consistently. Um, so mindfulness is kind of like this ongoing practice that lets us, um, you know, sustain these, these, you know, these traits, these ways of living that are kind of hard to do otherwise. And again, it's not, I just want to always come back to, it doesn't mean that we have to be a certain type of person. It doesn't mean our minds are going to be always quiet. It doesn't mean, you know, our bodies are going to be always still, or we're going to stay calm every time somebody, you know, gets in our face. It just means that we're doing our best to, you know, live with whatever's actually going on with as much skill as we possibly can. And with ADHD, I know there's a tendency to be really tough on oneself, uh, mm -hmm. especially with the amount of progress and people compare to, well, my friends without ADHD and they're able to do this better. Um, can you speak a little bit to how that self-compassion piece ties into that self-critical right. component of ADHD? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this new project we did, the new book I did with Karen Bluth, um, really we wanted to focus on, on this idea, which is being researched more and more in Western psychology of, of something called self-compassion. And certainly when I hear myself say that term, I always feel like um, um, it, there, there's a piece of talking about mindfulness. I always want people to 
sort of question everything and, and sort of look for the meaning beyond the words, you know, like just ask yourself, is it true? So if that phrase sounds new agey or anything, you know, think about what it really means. What it, what it means is that um, if we begin to pay attention to our inner worlds, most of us tend to have a really aggressive and assertive voice of self-criticism. And it's really different than we would advise anybody else or treat anybody else. So something happens and like the first reflexive thought we have is like, you idiot, or you blew it again, or you always, or I should, or it's just very harsh. You know, it's kind of like, um, I don't know if anybody remembers the Muppet show, but the two old guys up in the balcony, Waldorf and Statler, who just sit there and no matter what's going on stage, no, it doesn't matter what's going on on stage. They have something negative to say. And that also hilarious though. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you're, you're, it's true. That's the tricky part. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so all of that's true also, but um, so um, it's funny you say that because the other example I use a lot is Lucy from Peanut. So it's like a comic, but there's some reality to that, like right. constant heckling and criticism. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yet in the same moment, you know, I sometimes use an example, like if you're, if you can picture yourself, like, you know, being asked to come up in front of an audience of people and like, as you're reaching the stage, you trip over like a, a bump in the carpet and fall and your papers go everywhere and everyone's watching in this moment, even listening right now, you can probably imagine what you might think, you know, to yourself of yourself, you know, everyone's like, you know, I'm so, you know, I'm an idiot. I'm so embarrassed. Everyone's looking at me. I always do this. These things never go right. Um, and then if you take a moment and think about like, well, if you're in the first row of the audience and your best friend did that, you know, what would you do? Well, you'd probably, you know, immediately leap to their side and say, don't worry about it. Just take a moment to settle down. You know, it's okay. No one's judging you for it. Um, and it turns out, so Kristen Neff is, is probably the, the psychologist best known for developing uh, this concept of self-compassion and in, in from a research perspective. And it turns out that in spite of the fact that we identify with that inner self-criticism and perfectionism as what gets us to succeed, um, life is more nuanced than that. You know, what we teach about, for example, mindset in early childhood uh, is that one of the things that helps kids develop persistence and resilience is when we focus them on the fact that it's effort that makes a difference in life, that none of us are going to succeed all the time. So that when we're caught up in self-criticism and perfectionism, it actually might on some level keep us you know, moving hard to get better for a while, but it tends to lead to burnout and a less sense of well-being. And very importantly, it actually undermines our long-term resilience and problem solving because as soon as we do make a mistake, you know, we get, we quit, we get consumed by this, you know, I'm never going to succeed. This is, you know, this doesn't fit my picture of perfect. So, um, so long-term resilience and effort and problem solving rely on shifting towards um, kind of thinking about our inner lives the same way we would treat someone we really care about or treat our best friend. Um, And it's hard. It's a really entrenched habit. It's not like it changes in a day. Um, But the practice of self-compassion is um, working with, and I I can lay out what, you know, an actual self-compassion practice in a couple of minutes, but, um, but just conceptually first, what it means is we can practice working with this mental habit and changing it. So, so often that voice of the inner critic seems like something we need to 
you know, talk back to and logically. And if I could just get better at this and accomplish more, it'll be, you know, all these sort of rational ways we're trying to work with what is really just an entrenched irrational habit. You know, it's a, it's like a mismatch in strategy. We're not going to get rid of it through logically making it go away. We just have to work on it like a habit and try to change it while, while recognizing that it is just an irrational habit. So with ADHD, you know, Dr. Barkley has that brilliant summary of ADHD that it's not a disorder of not knowing what to do. It's a disorder of uh, not doing what you know. You know, that's a hard way to live. And, you know, there, like you just said a few minutes ago, there's this, you know, there may be a sense of just constant frustration that things are harder or that you knew better and, and some things didn't go right. Or, you know, you could be getting better grades and you know you could, but you're not. And, um, and that has an impact. And then when we lose you know, when our self-image becomes to be affected and we lose self-confidence and we lose self-esteem, you know, that then begins to affect, again, it's just this vicious, another vicious cycle of that affects how we feel and our ability to persist when things get difficult and our resilience. So this, you know, concept of practicing self-compassion would help, you know, will help anybody with, you know, resilience and how they feel Actually, I'll just add one side note, which is none of this is really supposed to be self-help because when it comes back to um, sticking to our best intentions, um, there's really a much broader premise of when we practice mindfulness, when we practice self-compassion, because we start to feel more settled and we start to see with you know more clarity what's best in any situation. It affects everyone around us for the better too. So self-compassion practice typically impacts how we treat other people as well. Um, I'm sure all of us are familiar with that sense of like when we get defensive and self-critical, that often changes very directly how we treat everyone around us. Um, so when we can practice these things, you know, that helps us sustain the resilience that helps us manage difficult situations like living with ADHD. Um, but if we get caught up in the vicious cycle of just feeling rotten about ourselves and critical of ourselves, um, you know, that directly gets in the way of honestly, you know, navigating situations, you know, making you know, what are often challenging decisions about how to address, you know, a problem. Um, all of it gets undermined by self-criticism. And when we're caught up in that, instead of coming at life with a more balanced attitude of, um, you know, self-compassion, which can sound like a wonky, you know, like a weird word, but it really just means that we can learn to treat ourselves, you know, no better, but no worse than we would treat anyone else we care about. And how does taking stimulant medication for ADHD play into all this? Does it make self-compassion possibly easier or does it make one more likely to focus on getting things done and maybe yeah. not practice as much self-compassion? Is there any evidence well, of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, I do want to actually um, come back around to actually describing what self-compassion practice mm -hmm. looks like, but um, the, um, but something like, the medications and ADHD are, are a great example of um, both, you know, looking at both mindfulness and self-compassion. You know, it's such a loaded topic for totally unfair reasons to me. I mean, they're just, they've just become this bugaboo in, in, you know, in society that it isn't just isn't fair. Um, so when you look at ADHD medications, you know, there's that concept of just trying to see any situation with clarity, which might mean starting with just the fact that, you know, we know an awful lot about, in spite, in other words, in spite of all the fear, in spite of all the misinformation, in spite of what might have been like an initial bad experience um, that any individual might have had, 
you know, the research is pretty blunt that they've been around almost a century, that they're, you know, safe and effective, that they shouldn't change your personality. You know, you should feel totally normal, except, you know, that your ADHD is better under control when you take them. So you can look at uh, mindfulness and decision-making in essence, and just trying to see with clarity what's going into your decision, because there's so much fear and, and confusion around just making the choice. Um, and then when it comes to your ADHD in general, there's never one thing that changes all of ADHD. And even when I talk about mindfulness, you know, it's really just meant to be as a support for all the rest of what we know works well for ADHD. So certainly anything that makes your ADHD more manageable um, should help with your overall sense of resilience and well-being and self-confidence. And the medications can be a huge part of that. Um, because they help you feel, you know, more um, on top of things and successful day to day. Um, and you mentioned you're going to tie that back around to self-compassion. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if we're going to talk about something like self-compassion practice, obviously we should describe what that looks like. And mm -hmm. um, so it's often described as a practice in three parts and practice is an important word because you really do want to set aside any short-term expectations and just realize you're working towards long-term gain. You're not expecting, you know, in the middle of a crisis to suddenly do this and feel better. Um, so it's usually described as a practice in three parts. And um, there's all sorts, I think I, I um, there's, you know, there's a lot like an actual guided practice you can get to like through my website in a couple of different places, or you can look up Kristen Neff's work and, or Karen Bluth's work and, and, and find the actual practice yourself if you want to try it. Um, you know, if you want to actually do the practice, but to describe the, what it looks like, um, the first part of the practice is, is mindfulness itself. Um, meaning, um, that part of taking care of ourselves is just really seeing what's going on. And that means, uh, you know, I can, I can, I, I can, as I'm saying that I can feel myself start to want to go down this road of describing mindfulness in much more depth because there's so much to it. I mean, just recognizing that, you know, there might be positive things going on in the middle of a, in the middle of a crisis that we're not giving our full awareness to. And, and that's important to acknowledge because part of our long-term resilience does rely on noticing the good stuff too. Um, there might be, you know, really challenging things going on at any moment. And part of self-care is just even before we can do anything about them, maybe there's nothing we can do about them. We need to just acknowledge it like we would for, you know, again, we'd want to comfort a child or a, or a friend who is struggling. So, so part of the practice is just developing a sense of just awareness. Like this is what's going on for me right now. You know, just accept like, this is it. This is my life in this moment. And, um, and that can be a big step in and of itself because maybe we are feeling unhappy or overwhelmed in a particular moment in time. And, and while we're doing our, um, you know, while we're actually doing our mindfulness practice, maybe even all the time, like, you know, it's a different discussion, you know, really probably through all our lives, there's value to seeing this is what's going on. So that's part of the practice is just, you know, this is what's going on for me right now. And then the second part of the practice is um, something without really paying attention to it. A lot of us don't uh, notice when we're in the middle of a crisis, which is when we're in the middle of a crisis, we often feel isolated. We feel like we're the only ones this ever happens to. I'm so, you know, I am the only one who is so bad that I do these things. You know, there's just this inherent sense of separation. So the second part of the practice is often referred to as, as something called common humanity, 
But to put that into words, it just means like this happens to everybody or whatever words you want to use. All people have moments like this. You can make it small, you can make it big, like all people with ADHD or all humans everywhere, you know, whatever feels natural. So the second part of, mind, of, this, part, of this particular mindfulness practice is we just bring into the practice itself, just this awareness of like, I'm not alone. Like this happens to everybody. Um, so when I'm teaching it or when I'm practicing it, it's often you're, you're sort of as best as you're able trying to time it to your breathing. You know, you're just sort of like, so you're, you're breathing in with a sense of just awareness. Like this is everything that's going on. And then you're sort of setting an intention for yourself, like a signpost with each out breath. So in the out breath, it's like, this happens to everybody. And then the really um, vital part of the practice is that sort of um, non-striving setting of an intention of treating ourselves better. So we try to put into words how we would treat, um, you know, a child or a pet or a, or a close friend, you know, so it's, so it's just this sense of self-compassion of, and, and it's usually put into words with something like, may I, be, may I be kind to myself in this moment, or may I approach this moment with kindness and strength, or just the words kindness and strength. You know, you just, it's just, again, just setting that reminder that it's possible. So in this moment, can I treat myself with kindness? Um, and you can easily get caught up in that. You know, you're not trying to make yourself feel that way. You're just trying to remind yourself, maybe even think of a friend because, you know, you, you know what that feeling is like because you probably have had it towards other people. So, um, so that's a lot of, that's a, that's a over, like an over description almost. So the, the shorter way of just saying it is, you know, that there's three parts of the practice. We're trying to sustain awareness. So this is what's going on for me, the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is everything going on right now. You know, all people have moments like this. And may I approach this next moment with kindness or, or with strength or whatever comes to mind. And, um, and then, like you said earlier today, we lose track of that intention for sure. And, you know, that's fine. We might daydream, be caught in distraction for a few minutes. And when we notice that, we just come back again and just do our best to start over. And I like, too, in the book where you mentioned that we usually have an event happen to us. We have a feeling about the event and that causes our reaction. Could you explain a little bit about the mindfulness kind of reframing of that? Sure. Um, so, you know, related to everything we're talking about today, we can start to look at it in, in any moment. There's all sorts of, you know, stuff going on, obviously. And some of them are external things we got to, you know, live with differently, but then some of them are very internal things that um, are affecting how we feel and how we live. And um, one of the ones that's often quite a challenge for many of us, but certainly has been studied as a specific challenge with ADHD is emotional reactivity. So emotions are just part of life. You know, they're going to come and go whether we want them to or not. Um, and very often we're living our lives in a way that it feels like emotions and how we deal with them, emotions and how we react to them or relate to them are all one and the same thing. So, you know, an emotion happens and immediately where, you know, crying, angry, running away, eating, whatever it is, you know, we just got this stuff and it all feels, um, you know, enmeshed, like it's inseparable. Um, but another aspect of mindfulness practice, you know, it's one of those things which can sound cliched, but it's meant not to be, it's meant to be practical is when we begin to practice, we start to 
create a, just a little space of just noticing what's going on without immediately reacting to it. And in fact, that's another way to reframe the meditation practice is it's not trying to be calm. It's that for five or 10 minutes or whatever we pick, we're setting the intention of like, whatever happens right now, I'm going to sit here. I'm not going to react to it. And that becomes a skill we develop over time. So I'm really, really upset. And normally I would do X, but right now I'm just going to sit here for 10 minutes and I'm restless and I'm not happy, but it's okay for 10 minutes. I'm safe. And I'm just going to try working with that, try to develop some patience with it almost. So when it comes to our emotions, we can make, we can practice and build just like any other skill in life, the ability to notice the emotion, which in, in and of itself may be a more complicated thing than it seems. It might have different parts to it, different, you know, several different emotions that are seeming like one, or there might be a physical component to it of like feeling sick to our stomach. And we can develop the ability to notice those emotions and then catch ourselves long enough to realize like what we do next isn't necessarily, you know, as fixed as it seems. And we build up an ability choice. Is, it's sometimes said, you know, our, our ability to choose an outcome and, you know, inherently comes from the ability to have something happen and to have enough space there to intentionally make a decision of what comes next. Um, so with practice that, that's that ability to create that space becomes more part of day-to-day -day life. And, and again, if this starts to feel too abstract, there was a study done. I actually was going to say last year, maybe two years ago now in which they looked at mindfulness practice for children as young as seven years old and showed improvements in their ability to manage their emotions. Um, so it is feasible. It doesn't, again, I wouldn't ever want anyone to present it as like a, you know, a miracle cure of any kind, but is certainly a, you know, a very useful thing to work with and, and is really, um, you know, can be a valuable part of life for many, many different people. What would you say to someone that is working at developing mindfulness and they feel like they just aren't making the progress they want to make? Because I, uh, and the, I know the idea is that not to put end goals to it, but for a lot of people, they are very end goal oriented. So what would you say to someone with ADHD that feels that they just aren't making the kind of progress they want to make in mindfulness? Um, and it's just not coming naturally. Right. To them. I mean, I, I think there's several different things to think about. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the first one I would say is if you're really worried, you're not making the right progress. There, there is an aspect of it that sometimes has to do with examining what your assumptions you're making about mindfulness practice are in the first place and um, and trying to let go of you know pictures of perfectionism or pictures that you know something specific is supposed to happen in a, in a, in a short-term way certainly but probably in a long-term way to some degree also so, so one of the things that undermines mindfulness practice you know chronically quite often is when you come into it with this premise that I'm going to feel relaxed or this premise that I need to be calm all the time. So one thing that, that is getting in the way in situations like that is, is the expectation that things are going to be, you know, any particular way, um, certainly in the short run, but sometimes in the long run too. So that, that's a big one is, you know, you may sit in meditation and your mind may be busy the whole time and it's still meditation and that's fine. Uh, so, so letting go of uh, sort of those sorts of things helps a lot. Um, second thing is, you know, it really is meant to be a long-term practice. So, you know, I've heard some of the more famous teachers of 
mindfulness say things like, you know, put a mark on the calendar for like a year from now and don't even think about whether you're progressing until then. Um, because it would be silly to do it if nothing was going to change in life. There certainly is an intention that things are going to change in life, but it, it isn't necessarily going to be so apparent moment to moment in the short term. Um, and then a third thing I would say specific to ADHD um, is that having ADHD often makes it hard to create new routines and stick to new habits and stick to a plan. Um, and, you know, that is a good moment of non-judgmental awareness of just recognizing that part of the reason your practice might not be progressing is that you haven't come up with the routine yet to practice regularly and that that's to be expected. Um, and the most important thing to do is to just, you know, if it's important to you, if you think it might be value, valuable to, um, to not get caught up in judging yourself for what happened before and to kind of learn from it and just recognize that, okay, maybe my plan was too open-ended or, you know, maybe doing it on my own is going to work. I need a class or I need to partner with a friend or, you know, just come back to the practicalities of, yeah, it's hard to, I mean, again, this is true for everybody. It just may be harder with ADHD. It's always hard to form a new habit. You know, this comes up a lot when people ask me about mindfulness and ADHD and is it feasible? I mean, it's been studied. It's feasible. People can do it. It's about um, expectations and, and for um, mindfulness and ADHD in particular, it may just be recognizing that there also needs to be an emphasis on just the practicality of how are you going to remember to do it? And that's, you know, that's just... Um, and that piece of just recognizing like, yeah, that's part of it. I got to make sure I plan and do it regularly. And that's hard for me. Um, you know, that's, that's totally normal. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything inherently good or bad. It's just a piece of the, um, you know, a piece of the puzzle to solve. And how does mindfulness overall impact how people relate to those around them? I think you mentioned that there's more of an idea of one than kindness or, uh, flexibility with others. Could you speak more to if people do this practice, even if they don't feel like they're doing it right, quote unquote, um, how right. it might influence day-to-day -day interactions? Um, I think really that's the, that's actually the bigger, that, that's really the depth of practice is to recognize that it's about, um, you know, supporting the world around you. Um, I mean, I could say on a general level first, it, you know, I think it's probably, intuitive on some level. I mean, you can think about how you uh, talk to people, how you, you know, how, how you feel and how that influences how you talk to people and how you problem solve and how you are just a living like after a two week vacation. I mean, you know, there's just when we're at our best, that obviously and inherently changes how we treat everyone around us. So the bigger premise of mindfulness practice is that by, uh, doing the things that sustain our own resilience and to help us, you know, maybe be the ones who are navigating any particular situation, you know, with some open-sided clarity um, changes everything for everyone around us, you know, I, and when it comes to communication, for example, I mean, one really hard thing to pay attention to and live with in life is, you know, in any situation, you know, obviously we only control our own piece of it directly so if you have to you know, communicate with someone who is seemingly totally irrational and off base, you know, it's not your fault they're irrational and off base, but you also can just recognize that 
there are things you can do that are going to escalate the situation. There are things you can do and say that are going to de-escalate the situation. Also being fully aware of the whole situation is recognizing that there might be some goal you need to accomplish. So, so being mindful in communication, for example, doesn't mean being passive. You know, maybe a lot of us have a habit maybe of ducking confrontation. You know, it's way more nuanced and challenging than just being quiet. But the point is, is that concept of if we can sustain our own sense of balance or so on, whatever, whatever words you want to put to it, don't get too, don't get cut, too caught up in the words. It's more about the, the concept. You know, if we can be at our best in that situation, then, you know, then we'll handle it as best as we're able. And that's really the only thing we can control. And it's an important model to bring some time to being a parent in the workplace. I mean, you know, there's a lot to say, do that's proactive and we got to take care of stuff. And I heard somebody say recently that, you know, the practice of mindfulness is inherently one that's linked to activism, because as soon as you stop, you know, as soon as you stop long enough to see what's actually going up in the world, going on in the world, you're going to want to improve things and work towards change. So it's a very proactive practice. And yet in any single moment, we can recognize that, you know, whatever is going on in front of us, the only thing we're in direct control of is, is how we are relating to it. And, um, and the, you know, and if we can do that with skill more of the time, you know, that's going to impact everybody else. And, you know, when you talk about mindfulness in families, for example, um, you can't make a child meditate. You can't make a child do mindfulness. It can certainly be a useful thing for children to do if you can guide them there over time. And yet you can be very confident that if you are practicing mindfulness as a parent and bringing that into your home, your children are benefiting from it and are probably learning mindfulness. And what would you say for people that are in the moment, they're talking with their child or at work and they're dealing with a difficult person or difficult situation, what's a hands-on mindfulness technique that they can do right away? to um, help them reevaluate the situation? I mean, that that's a, a, a great question, but but kind of one with a little depth. I mean, because mm-hmm. there, there's, there's two parts to my answer. I mean, certainly the bigger premise of all of mindfulness is by practicing it consistently, it just becomes intuitively part of life. So it isn't necessarily that you're going to actively make a decision to do a mindfulness practice in a challenging moment. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's actually the opposite. If you've never practiced before, that's never going to work. It's more that because you've been practicing regularly, you just, you know, you, you, you've, you've developed this intuitive way of noticing when you started to feel off balance or been distracted in conversation for several minutes and then to come back more quickly and more consistently. So some of it is just trusting in the practice itself. However, you know, there are in the moment practices that can be very effective. And, um, and one of them relates kind of to how I um, frame that self-compassion practice a few minutes ago. Um, so one practice you can do in the moment, and again, much easier if you're familiar with mindfulness overall, but you're certainly welcome to try it, is, um, is similar to how I laid it out. You can, uh, you know, we often come back to breathing practice again, just because it's, we're breathing, you know, it's something you can pay attention to that gets you out of your thoughts. Um, So one practice you can do is um, in the middle of the moment, it's just for a few breaths, you know, for for the sense that I do when I'm practicing it is within each in-breath, you're, again, there's that sense of just awareness, which is important because you can, it's that ability to say like, I'm feeling really rattled now, or everybody around here seems really rattled or, 
you know, whatever, you're just taking the whole thing in. Like, this is a really difficult situation. And then on the out breath, again, it's grounding yourself or setting that intention of just what can I bring to this moment? You know, may, may I stay, you know, quiet and grounded? May hold on to my sense of humor? May whatever intention you want to set for yourself can be, um, again, it's that reminder to come back to your intentions that you brought up at the beginning of, of our talk today. So, you know, so that maybe just for three or five breaths, you know, no one else even knows it's going on. You're just trying to come back to like, you feel yourself going off into stress and crisis mode. And then you're coming back, you know, to that ability to step out of fight, flight or flight for a moment and come back to your intention of like, may I just stay calm in this moment? May I just stay strong? Calm is a loaded word, but may I just stay strong in this moment? Or may I just stay kind in this moment? Whatever feels appropriate to you right then. Um, and that can have a powerful effect on some situations, even if you have no idea what to say or do. Just coming back to your own sense of strength and resilience, you know, really does make a big difference all on its own. And that you can set the intention, that that's up to you. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what's a kind of a parting note you want to have for listeners about the whole practice of mindfulness and self-compassion? What would you like them to walk away from? Um, I guess the most important thing on some level is just recognizing that um, these are all practices that, that are really accessible to anybody if you want to. Um, you know, we're working on building traits and, you know, that's something anybody can benefit from. Um, and maybe I guess I would just end by, you know, coming back to, I think I said somewhere towards the beginning, which is the single most important thing about working with mindfulness and self-compassion is that it's not like a prescription and it's not cookie cutter. It's really that if you listen it's about finding the parts of it that seem accurate and valuable to you and they're only going to be valuable in your life if you go out and try them you know it doesn't matter what i said today it doesn't have any impact on anything unless you go out and and decide it's useful and, and make a practice of it uh, and i and i guess i would just end by saying there was a great quote i heard recently that I think is a really important one, which is, of course, all these things are impossible to do consistently 100% of the time. You know, of course, no, no one lives that way. Um, but how many people are actually setting the intention to live that way? Mm. Um, and that has a profound impact on how we're living. I mean, most, you know, that, that's it. I mean, of course, we're all imperfect and we're only doing our best. But how many people are setting the intention to come back to living life in this way? And that's an important thing to consider. Yes. And thank you so much for appearing on the podcast, Mark. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it. It's always great talking to you. Thanks again to Dr. Mark Burton for appearing on the podcast. Dr. Mark Burton can be found at developmentaldoctor.com. And that concludes another episode of Talking Brains. And I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Sarkis at stephaniesarkis.com. Please hit that subscribe button and give us a rating. It's much appreciated and have a wonderful day.